Welcome to episode number eight of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about Social Security. Before I jump in, I want to ask you to do me a favor, to please share the show with others. They could be like, like-minded or opposite-minded. We believe in equal opportunity thought provocation here at the TruthQuest podcast. And please consider supporting the show with a few dollars. Every dollar donated will be used to expand the reach of the show. I've had some pretty good results so far boosting episode number two, The Truth About Abortion, on Facebook. So see the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the support page. I want to start out with my usual battle cry. Where in the Constitution is the federal government granted the power to administer an old age pension, retirement, or insurance program? If you have not already done so, please listen to episode number three where I lay out the where in the constitutional argument. The bottom line is Social Security is unconstitutional, and on that basis alone, the program should be abolished. But let's get into the background of Social Security. When the law was passed 83 years ago, on August 14, 1935, you were eligible for benefits at age 65. Guess what the average life expectancy was back then? 63. So clearly the system was designed so that few were ever expected to collect. It was a safety net. It started out as a 2% tax on income, up to $3,000. Now it's over 12% and it hits your income well over $100,000 a year. Six times higher. Let's be honest, Social Security is nothing more than a government-sanctioned intergenerational Ponzi scheme. It's a willful negligence on the part of the federal government. The Security and Exchange Commission's definition of a Ponzi scheme is an investment fraud that involves the payment of purported returns to existing investors from the funds contributed by new investors. The schemes require a consistent flow of money from new investors to continue. Ponzi schemes tend to collapse when it becomes difficult to recruit new investors or when a large number of investors ask to cash out. Now, how is that different from Social Security? The only difference that I see is that the federal government forces us to participate in in the Social Security scheme, whereas we have a choice to participate in others. This program is morally and financially bankrupt. The other willfully negligent component to this whole Social Security scam is the fact that as long as the federal government can print dollars, they will no doubt be able to pay Social Security recipients. Unfortunately, the dollars with which they they will be paying us will be worth less than the dollars that we paid into the system due to inflation. By the way, inflation will be a topic of a future episode. To demonstrate the absurdity of Social Security, you only have to go as far as the first person to draw Social Security payments. Her name was Ida Mae Fuller. She paid a total of $24.78 into the system. In 1939, at the age of 65, she started drawing a monthly check. Guess what? She lived to the age of 100. She drew over $20,000 from the system, over a 90,000% return on her investment. That would be funny if it wasn't such a glaring example of fiscal incompetence at the highest level. When I first read about Ms. Fuller's Social Security experience, we were in the middle of the long-anticipated launch of Obamacare. The only problem was the federal government, maintaining their 100% failure rate, just couldn't seem to build a functioning website to manage enrollment. Just like Social Security, Obamacare was doomed from the start. It was unsustainable for similar reasons to Social Security. By the way, I will tackle Obamacare in a future episode as well, but I digress. 
Let's spend a few minutes talking about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In selling Social Security to the American people, FDR blatantly misrepresented it as an insurance system. He also lied about the eventual cost of the program. His ulterior motive was to combat the Great Depression, to move older workers out of the workforce in order to make room for younger workers. So instead of growing the economy and creating an environment that encouraged job growth, FDR, in his economic ignorance or his willful negligence, assumed that there were only a finite number of jobs. True to form, FDR was unwilling to allow people to opt out of Social Security via the Freedom to Choose Amendment, even though it passed the Senate. Nope, the House killed the amendment as FDR threatened to veto the bill. Why they didn't force him to sign a veto is beyond me. See, even back then, the federal government was not fond of allowing citizens to make their own choices. I realize that what I just said may shock some of you. We have been taught to revere FDR for getting us through the war. But the man's actions, policies, and legislative agenda was downright harmful to the economy. And in the case of Social Security, now almost 100 years later, we have him and the 74th Congress to thank for this absolute financial cluster hanging around the noose, like a noose around the necks of 300 plus million Americans. By the way, the truth about FDR will be the subject of a future episode of the Truth Quest podcast. I seem to be giving you a lot of previews today. So, how bad is it? In a word, bad. According to a 2013 Urban Institute study, the benefits received for every dollar paid into Social Security has diminished over time. For example, recipients that turned 65 in 1960 received over $6 in benefits for every dollar paid in. Recipients that turned 65 in 1980 received $2. Those that turned 65 in 2010 received 92 cents. Projections for recipients that turned 65 in the year 2030 is 84 cents. Earlier this year, 2018, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, see show notes, published a report that stated the following. Number one, Social Security will run permanent deficits. Number two, Social Security faces large long-term imbalances. Number three, Social Security will be insolvent by 2034. And finally, number four, lawmakers should make changes now. The longer they wait, the worse the pain will be. One of the often ignored consequences of the so-called retirement insurance program, as FDR said, was the shift from personal responsibility for retirement to the government. Government intervention via Social Security has displaced personal savings for multiple generations of Americans. First of all, the money taken from our paychecks, the 12.4% that is transferred to Social Security, could have, been, could have become personal savings. Secondly, many people save less than they would if Social Security was not available because they assume the government program will support them in their old age. Mission accomplished, FDR. The more dependent the people are on government for their basic needs, the more power and control the government wields. Any government policy that discourages savings should be eliminated outright. You can do a Google search and look up savings baby boomers and see exactly what I'm talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the Dirty Half Dozen and how they apply to Social Security. Let's go back to in time to around 2002-2003 when President Bush started pushing to partially privatize Social Security. He wanted younger workers to stop throwing their money down the bottomless pit sold as the Social Security Trust Fund 
and invest those funds in an IRA-like account that they owned and controlled, not the government. What did Bush get for his troubles? Dirty half dozen members number one, three, and five. Malice and name-calling. Remember the endless line of Democrat Congress members running to the microphones and making claims that President Bush and the Republicans hate senior citizens? It was over the top, to say the least. Emotional arguments. Remember, remember them saying the Republicans are going to take away your Social Security. What about the propaganda lies and deception? They said they want to turn your money over to Wall Street. Or do you remember the political ad that the Democrats ran with Congressman Paul Ryan pushing Granny off the cliff in her wheelchair? Question for skeptics. Why are the Democrats so adamantly opposed to reforming Social Security? As you will see in a minute, there are dozens of proven privatization options from other countries that could be utilized in the United States. Yet instead, National Democrats choose the demonization route. I wonder why. Could it have something to do with FDR's master plan of dependency on government, power, and control? Could it be that they would lose a pillar of their election year rhetoric, scaring seniors into voting for those dastardly Social Security-killing Republicans? So what about reform? I want to spend the final part of this episode talking about reform, but first, let's recap. First, Social Security is broke. It currently has over $30 trillion in unfunded liabilities. That number will just continue to rise. Number two, the Social Security tax rate is 12.4% and is six times higher than the original rate. The definition of insanity precludes us from raising it more to cover the infinitesimal shortfall. Number three, Social Security is a bad deal for workers. They never get anything near back what they paid into the system. And number four, personal accounts are a proven, effective alternative. So let's look at the idea of personal accounts or mandatory savings employed by dozens of countries around the world. First, let me give you some background. Personal accounts boost economic growth in two ways. First, it keeps people in the workforce longer. There is no incentive to retire at 62 and a half years old in order to grab your Social Security benefits. You continue to work because you are always contributing to your retirement account. In the current Social Security environment, there are diminishing returns on the dollars saved, so why, just, why not just retire? So you have less workers contributing to the economy. The second way these types of accounts boost the economy can be found in any Econ 101 textbook. When you save and postpone consumption today, those dollars are now available either via the bank, uh, bank loaning them out or in the capital markets via stock purchases. Your saved dollars are used to grow the economy. Number two, successful privatization is sweeping the globe, leaving the United States behind. Had we implemented President Bush's Social Security privatization plan in 2004, millions of Americans would now be sitting on a private account worth tens of thousands of dollars. Assume someone earning $50,000 a year are able to invest a meager 2% of their Social Security contribution into a private account over the last 14 years. Even if you assume no growth in the investment, they would have socked well over $14,000. That's $14,000 they would have in their pockets rather than down the Washington, D.C. rat hole Ponzi scheme. As I mentioned, dozens of countries have successfully implemented some form of personal retirement accounts, including... Argentina, Austria, Bolivia, Bulgaria, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Denmark, Estonia, El Salvador, Hong Kong, Italy, Kosovo, Latvia, Mongolia, Mexico, the Netherlands, Peru, 
Poland, Sweden, Switzerland, and Uruguay. Just to give you a flavor of how these personal accounts have been successfully implemented, I want to highlight a handful of countries. Australia. Australia began to implement personal accounts back in the mid-1990s. They have full privatization. Employers make contributions based on the employee's wage rate. Currently, the rate is 9%, and will be raised progressively to 12% in 2025. No tax is paid when members withdraw from their fund. They can take all they want as a lump sum, subject to some limits, or buy an annuity. What about in Chile? They started in, early, in the early 1980s. They have full privatization. It's considered the gold standard of these private accounts. People are required to contribute 10% of their wages to an individual account. Contributions are invested in a pension fund chosen by the worker and accumulate a market rate of return. Payouts take the form of inflation-protected annuities or gradual withdrawals during retirement. How about Switzerland? They have a system of compulsory insurance. The contributions range from 7 to 18% of the salary. The older you are, the more you pay. Both are equally shared by the employer and the employee. How about Hong Kong? They have what's called a mandatory provident fund, and it's an employment-based private-managed mandatory defined contribution system. Employers of employees age 18 to 65 are required to arrange for their employees to join. Both the employer and employee are mandated to contribute 5% of the employee's income to the fund. How about the Netherlands? The New York Times had this to say in 2014, quote, the Dutch system rests on the idea that each generation should pay its own costs and that the costs must be measured accurately if that is to, be, if that is to happen. The Dutch approach bears little resemblance to the American practice of shielding the current generation of workers, retirees, and taxpayers while pushing costs and risk into the future, where they can metastasize unseen. Dutch workers typically sock away 18% of their pay. Most of it is in diversified, professionally run pension funds. That compares to 16.4% for American workers, but most of that is in the Social Security. And finally, what about Denmark? Employers and employees generally contribute a total of 9 to 17%. So as you know, I am fond of using questions to make a point. I have a recurring feature on these episodes called Questions for Skeptics, like I used earlier, where I pose the question on the topic of the day and require a coherent response before moving forward in the discussion. In this episode, I'm going to turn the tables on myself and pose a question from skeptics. So here we go. If younger workers are allowed to shift their payroll taxes into personal accounts, we would need to find somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 trillion to fulfill our current obligations to existing retirees, as well as workers that are too old to get much benefit from personal accounts. My response. You are absolutely correct. And as you may have suspected, I'm going to respond to this question with a question. Is it better to figure out a way to come up with $5 trillion in the near term while we shift to personal retirement accounts or postpone the decision to reform and saddle a future generation with a $30 trillion problem? Before we close, I want to acknowledge something. I made the claim at the beginning of the episode that the Social Security program is unconstitutional and therefore should be eliminated. I acknowledge that mandatory personal retirement accounts is equally unconstitutional. However, if our fellow citizens are unwilling to stand up and fight for the Constitution and allows the country to be run in an extra-constitutional or an unconstitutional manner, 
I would rather minimize the power and control vested in DC by taking the Social Security money out of their hands. It would be a step in the right direction. The bottom line is the Social Security issue is a moral issue. If eliminating it, my preference, is not palatable, then a little common sense and a sense of responsibility to future generations should be enough for our largely spineless representatives in Congress and a president that wants to make America great again to start reforming the system.